0: we need your love we need your hope we need your deliverance your faithfulness we need you in the midst of our world of our pain of all that we hold and bring this morning god so lord as we dig into your word as we think critically and deeply about how we love in public we know That we bring a message that is deeply needed in our world. A message of your love, of your grace, of your forgiveness, of your goodness, Lord. And that is what we worship this morning. So Lord, would you just be with us gently today? as we hold so much this morning, God. Thank you for our worship team. Thank you for the ways that you have gifted them to minister to us. We pray that we can love them and minister to them as well. So Lord, we give ourselves to you this morning. We give ourselves to you knowing that you love us, that you're with us, and we're so grateful for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
1: Any other elders that are here to come up and join us? Today is our last Sunday of Pastor Appreciation Month. And as I was thinking about what I should say about our three wonderful pastors, the word that came to my mind is pastores poderosos, the powerful pastors. And today we want to say a special thank you, Pastor Rose, to you. Give her a big hand. She deserves it. As a woman of God, as a leader, as someone that selflessly gives again and again and is so encouraging and so wise and truthful, we really thank you. And um, I want to pull this out so we can show everyone what it is. Rachel, who's not here with us today with her family, found this and had it made. And this is a rose saying. Use your voice. Thank you. Thank you for using your voice. Thank you for letting God use your voice. Thank you. Come, let's praise for pray for Pastor Rose.
2: Dear Heavenly Father, we are so honored to come before you and just give a little bit of gratitude to this wonderful woman you have raised up not only for her family, not only for our church family, but to really be a light in this world. Lord, Pastor Rosa does so much in just knowing the hundreds of thousands of children that she has touched through all of her care, through all of her divine connection with you, Lord, that she has been able to breathe life and give everlasting life that will be fruitful beyond these moments we have today. We thank you for her energy. We thank you for her resiliency. We thank you for her creativity and for her never-ending well of love that she continues to pour out to all of us. We know you have done mighty great works through her now, and there are many more to come, Lord, that she is just beginning to show the world all that she can do on your behalf and to bring people closer to you and share your love. We thank you for her advocacy of women. We thank you for her advocacy of people using their voice and that it is a unique position that we need in our world today. Continue to rain down blessings on her, Ryan, and the girls, and continue to lift them up. And we are so thankful. Let her fill our love that we love her and must continue to bless her. Amen. Amen.
0: Thank you. Thank you. You don't know how much that means, so thank you. I also want to give a shout-out to our, our other pastors, Pastor Mike and Pastor Edren as well. Anyone? Yes. And while I do that, who's got a Kleenex? Who's got a Kleenex? Help a sister out here. Well, good morning. Good morning, church. My name is Pastor Rose. Thank you. I serve as, thank you, one of the associate pastors here at Sanctuary... Thank you, Daniel. Well, I think one will be good. <laughs> I hope one will be good. Thank you. <laughs> well, it is good to be together this morning. I'm gonna thank our visitors who are here this morning. A big thank you to Jayla. So grateful for her and her voice. We also want to give a big shout out. I don't know if she's here, but Miss Pearlie had a 70th birthday. Exciting. And we also want to um, just share the news, the um, sad news, that uh, Camille Anderson, um, a, an attender here, she has served on our hospitality team, she served in Mosaic years ago, has passed away, unfortunately, and so we are grieving her death this morning There will be a private service um, this week, but the family does welcome cards, emails. So if you want to share your love, please send it our way at Sanctuary, and we'll be sure to get those messages to the family. Well, it's been a week, church. And right now, more than ever, we need to hear the word of our sermon series this week. Our sermon series right now is called Love in Public, growing in faith for the common good. Now the purpose of this series is to ask the question, what does maturing, growing faith in Jesus look like in public? As followers of Jesus, what does God call us to do? So we've been using the words of Dr. Cornel West when he, to guide us in our series when he says that love is, justice is what love looks like in public. Our daily life as Christians, what we do and who we are, should embody justice and love. And the world needs that. Amen? Amen. So so far, we have considered wisdom and joy. Pastor Mike shared with us that holy people are wise people. That wisdom is really the compass that guides us in, in these areas of love and public. That wisdom, is that it really allows us to deepen in our faith. And then last week, Pastor Edren encouraged us to strive to be people of joy. People who are quick to show and to share our joy because the world needs our joy. The world needs joyful people. Holy people are joyful people. Now this morning, we are going to look at good works. As holy and maturing followers of Jesus, our good works in the world should be an expression of our faith, right? Our good works should mark our faith in Jesus. But what are good works? Well, I wanna consider each word for just a moment. So first, good. So this adjective good implies something. If we wanna spread goodness in the world, then we must assume that there is something that the goodness is countering, evil. The purpose of spreading good is to counter the evil. Second, works. The word works makes me ask the question, what is the work? What's the work that we are to do? What are we trying to do? What is the purpose? Or put another way, As followers of Jesus, because of our relationship with Jesus, what work do we continue as his disciples in the world? Well, when I was in fifth grade, my teacher shared with me the amazing truth that Jesus loves me, that Jesus wants a relationship with me, and in turn, that Jesus would change my entire life. My fifth grade teacher, okay? So I prayed the sinner's prayer with her in my class, and I said, Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior. And at that time, that phrase meant to me that I had a personal relationship with Jesus, that I was devoted to God, and that it really was my ticket to eternal life. That was my ticket to heaven. And I was taught, maybe like some of you, that the prayer that I prayed, that was it. Like, that was all I needed to do, and now I would be in heaven forever. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! My response to Jesus was to accept him as my Lord and my Savior. But after that, what was the work that needed to be done? Well, as a Christian, I believe foundationally that my acceptance of Jesus as my Lord means that I am personally changed, right? We believe that we are changed when we accept Jesus. I once was lost, and now I'm found. I once was dead, and now I am alive. I once was confined and restrained, and now I am free, free, freedom, as a follower of Jesus, changed by the blood, I am now free. So my response to Jesus is my freedom. I no longer am succumbed by death. I no longer am overcome by sin. I'm no longer weighed down by the weight of my guilt. I have freedom. So if we've decided that Jesus is our Lord, then we have this freedom, but that freedom doesn't end with our decision to follow Jesus. Freedom is not a one-time event. Freedom is continuous. Freedom, freedom also isn't just individual. It's not only spiritual. Freedom is communal. Freedom is holistic. So this morning, I want to suggest that freedom is our work. But I, don't, I, don't, I do wanna interject and say one thing. The word freedom in the United States have been tainted a little bit. We have sayings here in the United States like land of the free, which is true in a particular sense of our democracy, but we know it's more complex than that. So when I say and talk about freedom this morning, I mean it in the sense of liberation that we are liberated people when we say Jesus is our Lord. Argentinian Old Testament scholar Alejandro Bota would describe freedom as oppressed people finding an end to the oppression. So it's a term that implies community, something we're all working towards. Freedom in the United States is often likened to an individual the right at which one can accumulate or can own for themselves. Instead, though, a biblical rendering of freedom is different. So when we consider this morning good works and our work in public, I want us to see that our work is the work of freedom from that lens. Our work is to end oppression. So back to my first question. What are good works? Well, in the framework of freedom, of liberation, it looks different than what we might assume. Now, typically, good works are defined as individual acts of kindness. Shoveling snow from your neighbor's sidewalk. Paying for a meal for someone behind you in the drive-thru. Buying school supplies for a backpack drive. These are individual acts of kindness, and they are absolutely essential in our world. They are essential as we build goodness. So don't hear me saying this morning that good works don't include that, because they absolutely do. But if our good works are separated from our work of freedom, of liberation, ending oppression, then I believe we miss out on a radical invitation from God to spread goodness in our world. Amen. And if we are directly trying to battle evil and to destroy that, then our individual acts of kindness are the resistance to that evil as we pursue freedom. But I also want to suggest that there's a whole system of evil that we won't even engage in as Christians if we limit good works to only individual acts of kindness. So I wanna ask again, what are good works? If love in public, what is the work we're to do? Well, this morning we're going to read from Exodus chapter one. In this story, we will meet two women And two women in particular who saw good works as the pursuit of freedom. And we'll see what they did and how their good works began a massive movement of freedom for the Israelites. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles. We're going to read from Exodus chapter 1. And we'll be reading from verses 6 through 22. And this is what Exodus chapter 1 verses 6 through 22 says. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have come, be, become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. (laughs) So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile but let every girl live. The story of accident is a story of oppression and freedom. It is a story of liberation from evil. It's a story of God's relentless faithfulness. And in this story, in the work of God's liberation, it's often attributed to a key human leader, Moses. Now Moses did incredible and courageous work in freeing the Israelites. Yet in our historical and male-centric reading of the Bible, I believe that we have not paid correct attention to the work of a massive movement of people. And that is the work of the midwives in Exodus 1. Specifically, Shifra and Puah. They started something. Now, that's not to discount anything that Moses did or the way that God used him. Often when there's a, a massive liberation, we uplift a hero, which is good, that's needed, but we often forget in our narrow memory the stories of others who are involved in the liberation. So historically and theologically, I believe that we have not given credit to the work of the midwives The work of the midwives who started a revolution, which then Moses entered into. So this morning, as we consider good works in public for the sake of pursuing liberation and freedom in our world, let's look at Shifra and Pua. How do they challenge us this morning to rethink what good works in public look like? So this morning, I want to suggest that good works in public is first, disobedience to oppressive powers. Second, it is disrupting false collective memory. And third, it is all out of our devotion to God. So to share some brief um, context of our passage this morning, Exodus is found in the Old Testament, and it's the story of God's people who are in slavery. Um, and it's the story of God, um, of their slavery in Egypt and their eventual liberation. And before Exodus, we see in Genesis at the end that Joseph, the son of Jacob, was sold into slavery by his jealous brothers. And Joseph eventually rose into power in Egypt and, uh, and um, eventually he was Pharaoh's right-hand man. He was in that high place of power. And because in Egypt, and there was a famine happening um, in in his homeland of Canaan, the people, Joseph's people, the Israelites, were leaving Canaan, and they were settling here in Egypt. Now, eventually, Joseph died, and now in our passage, a new pharaoh is in power. In our text in verse 8, it says, A pharaoh who did not know Joseph came into power. Now, this pharaoh led through a lens of scarcity. This pharaoh knew the history of the famines in the world. He knew the Israelites were growing in number. And from his overwhelming fear of scarcity, he sought to accumulate, to accumulate for himself. He wanted to accumulate land, money, food, power, and people, he wanted a monopoly of all that was to ensure that he would not run out. So he decided. So he saw the Israelites. He saw their large number, and in that he saw a threat. So he decided to enslave them. But his fear was not calm then, and said his fear only grew. He was afraid of his slaves the Israelites, he was afraid of their multiplication, and so he made an order. He ordered that all the Israelite boys be killed, and he didn't want their manpower to grow. But here is where Pharaoh's plan has a major flaw. Pharaoh considered the manpower, but he didn't consider the woman power. A truly wise man knows woman power is also real. So the midwives who are delivering the Israelite babies, they made a decision. They made a decision out of their devotion for God for the sake of liberation and freedom to disobey. To disobey. So in verse 17, it says, the midwives, however, feared God. And did not do what the king of Egypt told them to do. They let the boys live. The midwives embodied our first point this morning. To them, good works in public was disobedience to oppressive powers. Disobedience to oppressive powers. Well, many of you know that um, right now I'm studying to earn a Doctor of Ministry in Transformational Leadership at Boston University. And part of the scope of that program is really to ask questions about what transformation is needed in your community? How does your leadership provoke a collective transformation? And how is, are you, as a leader, able to share in that transforming work? Well, this summer, I took a core course in my program called um, Transformational Leadership. And as the dean of the school was, was teaching the class, she was probing deeply at the assumptions that we believe as leaders that then inhibit our impact of transformation. Now, somehow, I became the example in the classroom. Like, so wonderful, my favorite thing to be on Spotlight, right? So so as I sat in class, my professor asked me about an assumption that I hold in leadership. It took a lot of probing. So I'm sitting here in class. My professor is asking me very thoughtful questions. And I'm responding over and over again. And she keeps asking, why? 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 Now, at this point, I feel like I'm being interrogated by a three-year-old. Why? 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 <laughs> But as she kept asking questions, I finally unearthed an assumption. That assumption that I've come to believe is that people prefer agreeable women. People prefer agreeable women. People don't like it when a woman says no. People aren't used to women saying no. And women, we aren't conditioned to say no. Somatically, in our bodies, we have been conditioned to say yes. And the physical experience of actually saying no, of forming those words, can be really hard. At least they are for me. And it's hard because we know exactly the label we'll get if we say no. I can't even say it in the sermon. And I know that for my, for my sisters of color, the labels are even worse. So as part of the exercise, I had to name a goal that would then counter this assumption. That's hard to do. But the very simple goal I decided to have for myself is that I would say no to a person in power. So I want my no to be a no to oppression. I want my no to be a no to assault. I want my no to be a no to a scarcity, to injustice, and a yes to freedom. So today, as I read the courageous works of Shifra and Pua, I'm challenged by their disobedience. That's not natural for me their disobedience to oppressive powers as good works in public. Now, as election approaches, I am reminded that we can good, do good and disobedient work in public against oppressive powers. We can do that when we vote. And I'm going there. But each election... <laughs> this is like a whole new Pastor Rose. <laughs> But each election is a reminder that we together can be a collective force against oppressive leaders and powers. That each vote can be an act of disobedience to unfair leaders and laws. Each of us has the power to show up, to speak out, to cast our ballot, and yet we know the oppressive powers recognize, like Pharaoh, that there is power in numbers. So many people who should have the right to vote aren't granted one. Or there are barriers that are very unfair that make it hard. Voter suppression is real. So I hope that as election approaches, I hope that we can give a shout out to the memory of Shifra. I hope we can give a shout out to in memory of Pua and the other midwives who are disobedient in the face of oppression. And that we can declare again, we the people, instead of just a few powerful leaders. The dominant culture has believed for far too long this false story of earned power. And we're called to disrupt that story. So our second point this morning is good works in public is disrupting false collective memory. So I shared with you that uh, Pharaoh was overwhelmed by largely by one thing, scarcity. Because he was so consumed by the fear of scarcity, he wanted to accumulate for himself. And in his fear of scarcity, like many rulers, a false story emerged. In his fear, Pharaoh told himself a story that that the Israelites would grow in number, that they would overtake them, that the Egyptians would be helpless to the power of the Israelites. So in that narrative of perceived scarcity and threat, Pharaoh could have recalled the good old days. You know those good old days before the Israelites came to Egypt. Egypt. The good old days when the Egyptians didn't have a threat of the Israelites, when all was perfect. Those good old days are false collective memory. Or at least that's what I'm calling false collective memory. When a group of people in power feel that their power is threatened, they often devise this narrative of days gone by that was free of anxiety. And when a powerful group of people begin this false collective memory, they overremember reality. So, overremembering is telling this untrue story of how it used to be, it's overremembering this false memory that sways in one person's favor. And as a result, they become so preoccupied to getting back to what was once imagined that the use of violence is elevated as the only means to reclaim it. So in Exodus, we see. Pharaoh doing the same thing. He is overwhelmed by this fear of scarcity that he uses violence to control the Israelites, to enslave them, to accumulate power for just himself. He clearly justifies his need to accumulate that he enslaves an entire people group. Now, it doesn't take much to correlate this false collective memory to our history in the United States as well as present day. We are saturated with the dominant culture, remembering days that once were when they didn't have to share space with anyone and then when their power went unquestioned. Trump even ran an entire campaign on this false collective memory to make America great again. And, and we see his leadership how this false collective memory has fueled unquestioned white supremacy it has fueled oppressive actions separation of children from their families a ban of muslims who are entering this country the endorsement of nationalism and even uplifting white supremacy perpetuation of sexual assault and harassment greater polarity and division and just straight-up lack of compassion. So look, I might get in trouble and get some nasty emails for this sermon, but a false collective memory is real. And white people, we have the power, because of this false collective memory, And we perpetuate it unless we disrupt it. Actively disrupt it. And the midwives in Exodus chapter one challenge us to do good works in public to disrupt. Good works in public is disrupting this false collective memory. It is truth-telling. The midwives disrupted this false collective memory by disrupting the cycle of violence. So instead of killing the baby boys, they spared their lives. The act was a disturbance to the violence that was perpetuated, again, by that collective, false collective memory. And our world needs disruptors of a false collective memory. This week, um, our pastoral team got to be a part of a, an amazing training called STAR. It stands for Strategies for Trauma Awareness and Resilience. And in that, we um, our instructor shared a quote—a quote from Bayard Rustin, which I know he can symbolize some controversy. But I want to share his quote this morning. He says that we need in every bay and community a group of angelic troublemakers a false collective memory inflicts violence and our work is to disrupt to be angelic troublemakers to be holy disruptors holy disruptors to a false memory and i believe that we see the good works of disruptions in romans 12. in romans 12 verse 2 it says that do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We often interpret this verse to mean that we should shut ourselves off from the world, that we should not be tempted or swayed by the world, and therefore we don't engage in the world. When we have this mindset, then we essentially have no public faith. Instead, though, the purpose of this verse is to understand the difference between conformity and transformation. It's easy to be conformed. It takes no critical thought to be conformed. It just happens. But to be transformed means that you have to be critical, thoughtful, you have to be disciplined. Being different in the world takes intentionality. Conformity means being greedy and wanting more just for yourself. But transformation means you take a risk for the sake of others, the sake of freedom for others. And that is exactly what Jesus did. He was the ultimate disruptor for the purpose of transformation instead of conformity. He is our example so, church, how might we disrupt a false collective memory together through our lens of discipleship? How might we be transformed and do good works of disruption in public? Well, this afternoon we are going to host a My Church gathering here at four o'clock. And at that gathering, we're gonna be talking a lot of about a lot of different topics. And one in particular,'ll be talking about the big idea, as well as some of the data that's come out of our churchwide survey. And I hope that we consider very thoughtfully the big idea, the big idea for, to both shift from an outreach perspective to, be a, to a neighboring mindset, in a way to really focus in our impact in North Minneapolis. And as we do that this afternoon, I hope we can think critically and creatively about how we can disrupt. How can we disrupt the structures and the norms that perpetuate oppression instead of offering freedom? I hope we can think critically about how we can renew our minds, engage in God's work, and bring about the transformational work that God is already doing in the world. And I hope we can disrupt a false collective memory that binds people in cycles of greed and violence. And I hope that we can do that with our devotion to God at the center. So this morning, our third and final point is good works in in public is devotion to God. In verse 17, it says the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what, what Pharaoh asked them. Because of their devotion to God, they, they, dis, this, they disobeyed and they disrupted Pharaoh's plan. Their faith and their understanding about what their faith was about was strong. It was firm, it was unwavering, it was collective. There's power in our devotion to God. There is freedom in our devotion to God. And when we come here on Sundays to worship, we don't do it just so we can feel good about ourselves. Instead, a deep devotion to God means that we seek freedom for others. There will be a cost to ourselves, And that's exactly what Jesus did. So, church, is our devotion to God deep enough to withstand opposition to oppression? Is our devotion to God centered on freedom beyond just ourselves? Does our devotion to God challenge us to be disobedient disruptors of oppressive powers? I wanna invite our worship team and our band to come up as we begin to wrap up. The news this week has been overwhelming. We have seen multiple shootings, one at a grocery store where the shooter intended to enter a black church. Then yesterday, a shooting at a Jewish synagogue. We've seen explosives sent to multiple people in our country continuing to divide and deepen that division. We've also seen asylum seekers from Central America walking in droves toward the United States in search of freedom, in search of relief. And it's that image of them walking together that gives me hope. Hope that people are still fighting for freedom, fighting for liberation, disrupting oppression. And it reminds me that this is not the first time a large group of people have exited oppression and searched for freedom. The Israelites' liberation from slavery didn't begin with Moses. The Israelites' liberation began with small, collective, intentional acts of disobedience and disruption. And as followers of Jesus Christ, as people who have declared that Jesus is our Lord, if we don't see people's cry for freedom as a response to our faith, then we don't fully see how Jesus can be our Lord. If our faith, if our Jesus isn't big enough to see the dignity of every person, to see the right for freedom that every person has, then our We don't fully see how jesus is our lord and we are here this morning to declare that jesus is lord and that the kingdom is about freedom so that's what we declare and in that declaration we stand for freedom liberation we do not stand for scarcity we stand for abundance pharaoh stood for scarcity. Pharaoh stood for fear. So church, as we look at the news this week, look for Pharaoh. Look for scarcity. Look for the threat of not enough and disrupt it with abundance. When we vote, look for Pharaoh. Who is trying to enforce laws that accumulate for some and oppress others? and use your voice to disrupt those systems. And white people, we have been and still are the oppressors. Where is Pharaoh and us? There's a whole lot of disobeying and disrupting that we need to do if we say that we're devoted to God. So church, let's be holy disruptors together of Jesus who are so devoted to our faith that we transform the world. That we transform the world. So let's stand and worship together.